Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Merry Christmas. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, first book in the New Testament. And as you are doing that, we're stepping out of our Sermon on the Mount series to do just a, a one-time Christmas message on the incarnation. So as you're finding Matthew chapter 1, uh, as always, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. You'd keep, you can keep that Bible as, as our gift to you if you don't have one. And as you're finding that, let me just say what a joy it is to have Pastor Sidor and, and Sister Lillian with us. We're so grateful for you. Um, we're just, I was, Jennifer and I were with a group of friends last night. Um, eating dinner and reminiscing a bit about 10 years ago when we started Crosspoint. And God has done uh, far more than we had imagined. In fact, I, I, I didn't imagine anything. I was just kind of living four hours at a time back then. Um, I just, I don't think in the future very much. I kind of think about to my next meal and my next nap. And pretty much <laughs> that's the way I envision the future. But God has been tremendously gracious. And I would say, Maybe the primary way that he's been gracious to us is by, by giving us the kind grace of allowing us to be partners in the gospel with dear brothers and sisters like you that are doing wonderful work in places where there is great need. Friends, there's great need all around, isn't there? But what a joy and what a grace. And we consider it a particular mercy of God that he would link us together with you. And to think about this, that God knew in eternity past that that we would partner together in gospel ministry for the glory of God, for the renown of his name, and for the joy of all peoples in mountains, in Haiti, and in the valley of the Chattahoochee. How glorious is that? Friends, it does not get more satisfying than that. Amen. Amen. Well, let's get to Matthew chapter 1 as we... As we look at uh, this beautiful chapter, and we are, in fact, going to work our way through this entire chapter uh, rather quickly, and I have two points that I want us to dwell on, to think about, to stare at. They are not rocket science. In fact, I think uh, great theology has this beautiful combination where it is simple and profound all at the same time. And so as we look at this idea of Jesus becoming a man... I want us to center on two truths, and we're just going to put it up there at the screen, and then if you're a note taker, you can write these two things down and add anything else to it that might strike you as we work through this text. The first truth is that Jesus identifies with sinners, and then flowing from that first truth that we'll see in this chapter is that Jesus saves sinners, and all of this, these two truths, are bound up in this idea, and this truth, and this reality from the scriptures that God became a man, that, that God himself, through his son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a man and dwelt among us. Now, um, there's been a lot of talk about the Star Wars uh, movie coming out, The Force Awakens, I believe is what it's called, and we have a couple younger guys on our staff, who one in particular who's serving in kids' church right now, who shall remain nameless, but his name starts with an R. And his last name starts with a W. He is, to, to call him a Star Wars aficionado 
would be like saying that I like Italian food. It's a bit of an understatement. Or Mexican food, even better, right? It is, it is an understatement. He is a, well, let's just call it like it is. He is a Star Wars geek. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that I think makes people of that ilk so interested in it is all the wonderful, like, just the story, the fantastic nature of, 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 of these galaxies, galaxies far, far away, and how unbelievable it is, you know. I mean, just, a, just I can remember as a kid watching Star Wars 1, which then later on became 4, kind of blew my mind a little bit, but hovering on this spacecraft, all this, just, this sci-fi stuff, just beautiful and incredible to imagine. Well, listen to this. J.I. Packer, this British theologian, says that this truth of the incarnation This truth that we're going to stare at today is so incredible that it is stranger and more fantastic than anything in fiction. So take the most amazing thing in Star Wars or, I don't know, Star Trek or whatever. The more I get into it, the more I'm going to mispronounce the name and I'm going to be scorned by all the nerds in the church. But nothing is so fantastic. It exceeds the limits of our imagination. Nothing is so incredible as the incarnation that God became a man. C.S. Lewis, in fact, says that it is the central miracle of the Bible. Everything flows from it. The atonement, the resurrection, the parting of the sea, the multiplication of the fish and the loaves. Every miracle in the Bible is subordinate to the one great miracle, as he calls it, of the incarnation. And so let's stare at this great truth and, and uh, let it just wash over our, our soul uh, this Sunday before Christmas. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And yes, we're going to read some really awesome names today, and we're going to see some things in there. Praise God. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. So let's stop there and let's just consider, because here's the point that we want to dwell on this first half of the chapter, is that Jesus identifies with sinners. And so right there in verse 2, we read about, we read this name Abraham, and we spent about a year looking at the the book of Genesis uh, a while back, and we remember that Abraham is this great man of the faith, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise. All right, here we go. And we have this picture that Abraham was this great and mighty man who was stood head and shoulders above all others as this great man of faith. But that's not the biblical account of Abraham's life. In fact, Abraham was a pagan wandering around in the desert with his father in Genesis 11 when God, by his pure and unadulterated grace, stooped down and chose Abraham, not because of anything good of him, but simply because of his grace. And he made Abraham a great nation. And then he says to Abraham, you are my man, through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth and I'm going to do wonderful things through you and your, 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 your descendants are going to outnumber the stars of the heaven. I mean, that would be an emboldening thing, wouldn't you think, if God spoke to you in that sort of way? Well, within the same chapter of God speaking to Abraham in this emboldening sort of way, Abraham, in fear and trembling, lies about his wife being his sister to save his hide. 
Abraham was a sinner. In fact, he doesn't just do it once. He does it twice. A couple of chapters later, Abraham again lies about his wife being his sister. And even though she was kind of a half-sister, what he was really doing in that situation was just trying to save his hide. And so Abraham was a weak and wounded sinner. But Jesus identifies with sinners. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Well, let's stop there. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, was a spiritual train wreck. He started off his young adulthood by tricking his brother into selling his birthright to him for some chicken noodle soup, right? And then later on, he robes up in this hairy little kind of overcoat to trick his dad about his identity so that he would get the blessing at the end of his dad's life. Jacob is a deceiver, a stealer. In fact, that's what his name means, usurper, stealer. Sorry, son, that I named you Jacob, by the way. <laughs> but Jacob is actually becomes a man of great grace. Because that's the bound up in Jacob's name is the gospel. That God is gracious to deceitful stealers. In fact, we are all Jacobs, are we not? Jesus identifies with sinners. In fact, in the line of Jesus is a great list of sinners. Jacob is a sinner. Jacob was the father of Judah. We got to stop again. Judah, later on in Genesis, talk about smashing a fly, not with a fly swatter, swatter, but with a sledgehammer. Jacob to or Judah to retaliate for the obviously heinous and completely sinful and wicked raping of his sister Dinah decides not to take retribution out against the one or two men that did that, but against the whole town. So Judah is a mass murderer in the line of Jesus. Jesus identifies with sinners. Judah, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Well, let's stop and talk about Tamar, who happened to be Judah's daughter-in-law. Her first husband died, uh, which was Judah's son. Judah, as was the custom, gave her another one of her, his sons to uh, be to take care of Tamar. This son dies, and Judah starts thinking, this girl might have a little jinx on her. So I'm not going to give another son to be married to this girl because she's got a little, little black widow juice going on or something. Everybody that she marries dies, right? And so Tamar said, all right, if that's the way we're going to play, if that's the way we're going to do this, all right, I got a little something for you, pa-in-law. And I know we got some children in here, so earmuffs, please, children. Um, Tamar dresses up like a woman of ill repute and seduces her father-in-law, Judah, who's so drunk, evidently, that he goes along with the plan. And she gets great with child through Judah. And she's in the line 
of Christ. Jesus identifies with sinners. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab, the beginning of Joshua 1, is another woman of ill repute. She was a prostitute who was willing to share her, hide out the Jewish spies as they spied out the promised land. So if you're a person who thinks, you know what, you don't know what I've done, my past is too bad, God weaves into the genealogy of Jesus people who are so broken that you would never think that would be associated with the pure, unholy king of kings. But they're jumping off the page to us. Before we even get done with the first paragraph are two women stained with immorality. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth was this Moabitess. We studied her a few years ago when we went through the book of Ruth. Ruth was this Moabitess Gentile woman who attached herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then she becomes, when her husband died, and then she is redeemed by Boaz. It's just this great, incredible, beautiful, gospel-rich story. But Ruth was a Moabitess. So who were her people? Her people began in Genesis, 8, or Genesis 19 when Lot and Abraham were going their own separate ways. After God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot is so scared of just the hellfire that rained from heaven, he goes to live in some caves. And his two daughters are scared that there's no men around, that they're not going to be able to you know, produce offspring. And so, kids, earmuffs, please. They get their dad drunk and cause their dad to lay with them. One of the daughters, the firstborn, becomes pregnant by her dad. And the offspring of that union becomes the Moabitess, the Moabite people. That's Ruth's People. Do you think you're from a family that's kind of jacked up and so there's no way that God could use you? <laughs> the Moabites make it into the line. It's getting redundant, friends, isn't it? Jesus identifies with sinners. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father, it's reaching its high point here, David, the king, And David was the father of Salmon by the wife of Uriah. Now, isn't that interesting? We know the story, don't we? That David scandalously lays eyes on the wife of one of his captains who's away at war defending his kingdom, lays with her, commits adultery, and then to cover up his sin, sends this man into the teeth of the battle to ensure that he will be killed. So in essence, David covers up his one sin of adultery, compounding it with the sin of murder. And the child of that offspring becomes the great king, Solomon. Friends, Jesus 
identifies with sinners. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Now we're going to get into a long list of kings. doesn't mention all the kings in the history of Judah and Israel. There are about 40 total kings in the history of Israel and Judah as the kingdom divides. About eight of them were good. So that's a little less than 25% of them are good, right? And let this encourage you if you happen to watch the Republican presidential debate on Thursday night and the Democratic presidential debate on Saturday night, right? As you look at the people, one of those 15 people will be the next president of the United States, and you might, like me, might be just a little discouraged, right? Oh my God. Oh goodness. And I'm going to read some names, and these cats were terrible kings, most of them. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, bad. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, eh, not so bad. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, okay. And Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram was the father of Uzziah, terrible kings. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Now, he was pretty good. He was pretty good. Hezekiah was a good king. I mean, every now and again, you get a... Truman or, a, you know, a, an Eisenhower in there. I don't know. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. He was good. And he was only like eight years old when he became the king. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Stuff had gotten so bleak with God's people that he gave them over to their enemies so that they could be carried away into Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akam, and Akam the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, whose who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The point is this, friends, is that Jesus identifies with sinners. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about this very point. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Listen to this. Listen to this beautiful truth. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, so this is speaking about the Father and what he's done with the Son, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So saying this is fitting that the Father would work about bringing about redemption in this way to make the Son take on flesh. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies meaning Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one source, humanity. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call these people his brothers and sisters, and he's not ashamed to call any who will trust in him to be his brother or sister, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Listen to verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook 
of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, listen to this truth. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That means Jesus had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We're going to come back to that word in just a bit. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So friends, we have a God who has come to identify with us. And that is what Lewis and Packer are getting at when they say that nothing is more fantastic or unimaginable than the truth and the reality of the incarnation. That the one who cannot be moved... The impassable, that's, there's this doctrine called the impassibility of God. In other words, nothing can happen to him. He is completely above anything. God never reacts to anything. And yet this God, who that is always true of, condescends and comes into the creation that he created and lets it move him, right? And so we have this Jesus, this God in the flesh who has become like us and identifies with us in every way. Just a few points of application for this before we move on to the next point and wrap this up is that number one, as we think about this, this means that as we read this list of names, it reminds us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Now, we give kind of like, like oh, yeah, of course, we, we know that. We're Christians. We've been reading the Bible and sitting. So, yeah, praise God. Yes, of course. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. But let's, let's drill down on that a bit. There are people, I'm sure of it, there are people in this room who think that they could never really be known by God. And what a, what a sad place that is to be. Is that, where, is that where you are? Do you think, we've read this list of names. Okay, this guy murdered a whole town. Yeah, great. This guy committed adultery and then murder to cover it up. But Brad, you don't know what I've done. Isn't there a sort of self-absorption in that sort of mentality that makes us, because we are so consumed with our own unworthiness that we feel like we are beyond God's grace. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Rid yourself of this unnecessary spiritual inferiority complex. Get rid of it. It is not about you. Stop being a sort of veiled narcissist who makes it all about your unworthiness and misses the point of God's grace that Hebrew says is able to save to the uttermost. Listen to this. I came across this a couple days ago and I, my heart soared. Right, I'm going to read a relatively lengthy quote 
from Jonathan Edwards. And, and as I read this, I thought, oh, I, I need, yeah, let's put that in. And then right after that, I was reading this book on preaching that said, I can just imagine the writer saying it very stuffy. Make sure that when you're preaching, do not ever read long quotes to your congregation because they will lose interest in the middle of the quote. And long quotes, and I was like, well, I do that a lot. And I've said, not my people. They can hang with it. All right, so all right, so we're going to have it. So we're going to have it up on the screen. These are, these are beautiful words. This is from Jonathan Edwards, great American theologian and pastor back in the 1700s. You know, he gets a reputation of being the guy who wrote or, and preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And there's this picture about how we are like spiders dangling over the fire. And that's all anybody knows of Edwards because maybe you had, you know, one lesson on it in school. And so you think about Edwards as this grumpy, mean, you know, guy that just preaching hellfire and brimstone. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth, although he preached the reality of the judgment of God and the impending doom unless we repent to Christ, which is certainly a truth in the scriptures. He also preached about heaven and joy. And in this particular sermon called, and this is, I think, his best sermon. Ooh, that's a statement. Edwards' best sermon, The Excellency of Christ. It is rich with gospel grace. Listen to what Edwards says about Christ and this idea that he identifies with sinners. Okay, hang with me on this. Listen to this. If you are a poor, distressed sinner whose heart is ready to sink for fear that God never will have mercy on you, you need not be afraid to go to Christ for fear that he is either unable or unwilling to help you. Here is a strong foundation and an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your poor soul. In other words, young man who is caught in lust and pornography and you think that you have turned back from Christ one too many times, not so. There is an inexhaustible, bottomless pit of mercy that awaits you. Here is a strong foundation and an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your poor soul. And here is infinite grace and gentleness to invite and embolden a poor, unworthy, fearful soul to come to it. If Christ accepts you, you need not fear, but that you will be safe. For he is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear, but that you shall be accepted. For he is like a lamb to all who come to him and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. He goes on. It is true that he has awful majesty. In other words, he's not a pushover where you can just do whatever you want. If you continue in your sin, yes, he will judge you. But he is a great God and infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner. That Christ is man as well as God. In other words, he identifies with you. He's not in heaven with a frown on his face, with his arms folded, grumbling about how jacked up you are. This Christ is a man as well as God, and he became like us in every way. I, I added a little bit to Edwards' quote there. As this Edwards needs me to sort of explain his point. He is a creature as well as the creator, and he is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. This may well make the poor, unworthy creature bold in coming to him, 
You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he is a lion, (laughs) he will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you, dear sinner. He will be a lamb to you, right? That's the beauty of the incarnation. That God is not distant from us with his arms folded, but he's with us, bidding us to come receive an inexhaustible treasure of grace. Friends, if you are in this church, whether you've been here for years or whether you were invited by a friend, and you have this strange notion in you that there's something about you that is unredeemable, friends, die to that. He is not the lion who will destroy you. He is the lamb who is here to receive you. Turn away even from yourself and run to the gracious, inexhaustible well of grace that is Jesus Christ. He identifies with sinners. And this should produce, I think, in us tremendous humility and sincere worship, right? Because you're thinking, okay, Brad, I got this. I know you have heard, in fact, I think I've heard you say this before. Yeah, and don't we need to hear it again so we can worship him more passionately? Because how does God bring this truth to other people when a bunch of other former rebels, now pardoned, now receive mercy, have this thing about their life where this is the driving reality and their life is so incredibly Godward and centered on Christ and they're so humble that it just emanates this truth, this inexhaustible treasure of Christ just seems to just just to just exude from them. So I need this truth again and again and again. And it produces a humility in me. And when I look at other people, they get underneath my skin. And I want to just slap them. And I'm, you know. And I, I watch the presidential debate. And I just want to run through the screen. And I want to slap people. And, and then I think God redeems all manner of people. God, God is on his throne. And he's good and he's gracious. Okay, so let's keep going. Then let's finish this up. But friends... This is the second part of the chapter. We need more than just somebody to identify with us. We need a Savior. So it's like telling somebody about some bad experience that you had that had a terrible effect on your life. It's, 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 it's beautiful if that person can listen to you and they can maybe share a similar experience that they had. And to some degree that is comforting, but they cannot change the consequences of what happened to you. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just identify with us and listen to us and sympathize with us. He does more than that. He saves us and he changes the outcome, the consequences of what has happened to us. And that is the promise of the gospel. That Jesus doesn't just come to identify with sinners. But now we'll read on that Jesus has come to save sinners. So let's keep reading Matthew chapter 1 and we'll end quickly. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly but as he considered these things behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying Joseph son of David do not fear to take Mary as your wife For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy 
spirit. And we could stop there and just point out all sorts of implications that all of these sinful people, so Jesus is really a man and was really born of a woman. And all of these sinful people that are in the line of Jesus, you might ask, well, why was not these people's sin transferred to Jesus? Because that's one of the great truths of the Bible, that we are by nature and by birth sinners because we're all children of Adam, right? Because so, so my children look like me and their mother because they are natural born descendants of us. So you may ask, well, why, isn't, why doesn't he inherit? And by the way, my children inherited something far deeper from me than just a bloodline, right? Or, you know, an ability to grow a beard in the fourth grade. <laughs> they inherited from me a sin nature. Why does Jesus not inherit a sin nature? And here's the most fantastic miracle of all, because Jesus was not conceived in the natural process, right? Jesus was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit, and you ask, how did that happen? Come on, man, I don't know. It was a miracle. In fact, Lewis calls it the greatest miracle of all, that the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, God planned, Jesus execute, executes, and the Holy Spirit brings about this miracle of the incarnation where the Holy Spirit conceives the life of the Son of God in the womb of a sinful woman who's the descendant of sinners in such a way so as to make Jesus fully human that he would identify with him in every way, but yet fully God. So that we have more than just a man who can identify with us. We have a God who can save us. And that's the next sentence. He says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And how does he do this? Well, we just said it. Because he's not just fully man. He is fully God. And listen to what another verse in Hebrews says about the same Jesus. So remember, we just read in Hebrews 2 that he became like us in every way. Yet without sin, Hebrews 4 says, so he's like us in every way, facing everything that we face, identifying with us, so that he is not a lion hovering over us in, in dread, but he is like a lamb beckoning us to come. But he's like us in every way, yet, as Hebrews 4 says, without sin. And then listen to what Hebrews 7 says. Hebrews 7 verse 25, this is a beautiful text. Hebrews 7 verse 26 says this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, speaking about Jesus, and the priest was the one that goes between God and the people, and Jesus perfectly fulfills that picture that we see in the Old Testament of the role of the priest. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Listen to the description of Jesus. So he's like us in every way, yet sinless, but yet he's also completely unlike us because he needs to do more than just identify with us. He needs to save us. And listen to this explanation of Jesus, our high priest. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's Jesus. 
the one who doesn't just identify, but who can save because he's completely pure and righteous. I remember we talked about that word propitiation in Hebrews chapter 2. That word propitiation means that Jesus becomes the wrath-bearing sacrifice on the cross. And listen to this. This is the very crux, the very baseline of the gospel. That where While we were all sinners, like this line of people that make it into Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, while we were all sinners, separated from God, completely unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God, God in His grace and kindness sends His Son, the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal, co-glorious with God, through the agency of the conception of the Holy Spirit to become a man, the greatest miracle of all, God, fully God, in the flesh, fully man, in the person of Jesus, to live a perfect life where all of us, where Abraham and all of those kings and David and everybody else disobeyed God in every one of us and thereby, through our disobedience, have separated ourselves from a holy God, unable to do anything. God comes and identifies with us through Jesus, his son, in the flesh, Jesus lives a perfect life where we have all lived a very imperfect life and then he lays down that perfect life on the cross and he bears the punishment that should have been ours. And he has sufficient holiness to absorb and extinguish and satisfy, that's that word propitiation, all of the judgment that should have been ours because he's not just a perfect man, he's an eternally, inexhaustibly holy God. So on the cross, the Father pours out his judgment, not on his people, but on their representative, Jesus, who's the only one who can truly bear it. He satisfies it, he removes it, and then he rises again in victory over sin and death, proving that he didn't die because of his own sin, but because of the sin of his people, and proving that he is Lord of all, even over death. And now commands all people, even you, friend, all of us, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, to turn and trust in him, friends. That is the gospel. That's how God saves. And he has been planning to do this from the beginning. Let's read and then we'll end with this. What does he say about this Jesus? All this took place to fulfill. Verse 22, what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. So this has been a plan. Right? God's not reacting to anything. He's not reacting to the sin in Genesis 3. He's not reacting to things that have gone awry in your life. He's not reacting to a weak group of candidates for the president of the United States. He's not reacting to anything going on in the Middle East. He's not reacting to anything, but he is planning by his sovereign grace and mercy everything that happens. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we end on this. I want you to see this picture and then we'll pray. I want you to see that in the beginning of the Bible, it starts with God with his people, Adam and Eve. And just a few chapters in, in Genesis 3, it goes awry. 
Adam and Eve willfully rebel against God, and they plunge humanity and all of their descendants, which includes us, into this separated state from God. So we are no longer with God. We are separated from God. And then God sets in motion this plan that he has had before the foundations of the earth. God is not reacting to anything. He sets in plan this motion, in, in motion this plan to redeem a people for himself and to bring salvation to the whole world through this people that he would cause to be his showcase of his mercy. And through these people that we read about in Genesis 1 comes this Savior who is named God with us to restore the relationship, the fellowship that God had with his people at the beginning. God with us. And so the Bible begins with God with us. The middle of the Bible is separation and God reconciling the world to himself. And then the Bible ends with this. Listen to this. This is the point of the incarnation. This is the point of the manger. This is the point from eternity past that God has been pointing to. Verse 1 of Revelation 21. Then I saw John the Apostle has this vision of heaven. And it's the end of all things. So remember, it started with God with us in the garden. It was broken through sin. Jesus came as the one who identified with sinners and the one who saved sinners through his work on the cross so that God could be with his people again. And this is the end. This is the result. This is the goal of the incarnation, the goal of God's redemptive plan. Verse 20, verse, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God with us. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away, friends. That is the certain and sure end and result of the incarnation and where everything is headed. God with us. So take, take the feelings of unworthiness that you may feel in your soul. Take the thing that you are most anxious about in this world right now, in your life. Take the thing that you are most fearful about in the future and subordinate it under that great grand truth of God with us. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious truth that you are with us and that you sent your Son, Jesus, God the Son, to identify with us, but to not just identify with us, to save all of your people, not losing one of them, 
Father, if there is a person in this room who, if we could be honest, they have really made an idol out of their own unworthiness. And that's what they're worshiping. They're worshiping. They're bowing down to. They're giving in to. They're paying homage to their own sense of unworthiness. Lord, would you open their eyes so that they would see the wrongness of that logic and the beauty of the gospel? That Jesus is like a lamb, ready and willing and able to conquer every foe to be an inexhaustible fountain of grace. And for the Christian even that maybe has trusted in that truth, and, but yet, is as we sang earlier today, they're just trying to work their fingers to the bone to make themselves still sort of acceptable to you, God. Let them bask in the liberating power that Jesus identifies with sinners, which is all of us. And then, Lord, don't let us stay there as if just identifying can redeem us because we need more than identification. We need more than somebody to just feel sorry for us and and know what we're going through. We need to be rescued. And so, God, would you tune our hearts into that glorious reality that Jesus extinguished your wrath. He satisfied your justice. He he removed the penalty for sin and he rose again in victory over it. And now he promises, he promises that we will finally and fully be restored and every fleeting pain, every anxious moment, every fearful, uncertain future thing, all of it will melt away in the glorious consequence of the incarnation of the Son of God, the reality that you will dwell with your people again. May we lean into that this Christmas season and may it free us to give our lives away for this great joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.